Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings, the official betting partner of the 2021 World Series. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the greatest sluggers of all time, Mike Piazza. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with one of the greatest catchers of all time. He was a 12-time All-Star and he won 10 Silver Sluggers. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Piazza. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, thanks for having me, man. Congrats on all your success. Thank you. Uh, fresh off fresh off the plane, you're an Italy man now, which uh, we talked about briefly uh, when we were setting this up. Pretty cool, pretty different probably. And by the way, you're the Pied Piper of baseball in Italy. That's uh, that is true. I mean, it started actually back to the original uh, World Baseball Classic in 2006. It was one of my last years. Uh, I was actually with San Diego, and um, I and the U.S. team was a little bit of a mix between young and old. And I just thought it would be uh, a good idea, or at least to try to grow the game worldwide to see if I could play for Italy. And we had a few other guys that were interested in doing it. So uh, we just kind of kind of had a party of it and had a good time. We had some, some pretty good players and we had some good games. And the funny thing about it was we were playing Venezuela and in Orlando and Bobby Abreu was like, uh, he goes, you guys aren't Italy, you're Team USA too. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. Uh, it is it, and now that you're living over in Italy what what is what is the true level of the baseball interest like with the kids growing up is it is it getting stronger as as the game grows or what's that what's that level actually it has been i mean they had a major leaguer a few years ago his name was Alex Liddy i i think he played for Chicago White Sox he's playing now in Mexico in the summer league and he's still playing professional baseball i think uh Another another guy, Alessandro Maestri, who is from uh, Rimini, uh, he pitched a little bit in spring training and then had a few good years in Japan. Uh, but but it's weird because the, the sports in Europe, in Italy specifically, is funded by the Olympic Committee. The Olympic Committee is called CONI. So baseball was in the Olympics this year, uh, so the funding has kind of gone up. And of course, as you well know, or you may or may not know that there's no sports in the schools over there. So kids that go to school, it's just specifically for academics. There's no glee club. There's no band. There's no football team. There's no soccer team. There's no baseball team. So if you want to play sports, you have to do it outside of the school system. And so, of course, that requires funding. But Major League Baseball is starting to reengage now after the pandemic. As you all know, they had the uh, series in London, I believe. Uh, pre-pandemic and it was very popular and so uh but it's like anything baby steps uh you know you take a step forward it's like a step back two steps forward a step back so but there's a passion over there there's a tradition uh baseball was brought to italy by the american servicemen uh, during world war ii and they were playing games introduce it to italian kids actually originally in the which is south of rome so 
there's a professional league. It's, it's had its peaks and valleys. And, and now that I'm living over there, it's obviously easier for me to, to stay engaged and kind of help them. Uh, so, and it's fun for me. It gets me out of the house a little bit. And uh, we just had a tournament in Torino and Turin, and we finished third European championships. And that was a big step because we had a little bit of a valley a few years ago. So uh, it's fun. And I love working with the kids, and it's my way of kind of giving back to the game a little bit. Very cool. All right, born in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Uh, you grew up in Philly. Mike Schmidt. Schmidt is your favorite player growing up. Uh, and we actually have similar, similar childhoods. You know, you grew up in Philly. I grew up just over the bridge in, in uh, Jersey. Uh, I want to hear about a little Mike Piazza and, and just take me into your childhood a little bit, what it was like growing up. Well, I, I had a, a great childhood. I mean, as you well know from the area, it was a very um, passionate sports town. Um, the 70s were uh, was a rough decade as far as because of the economy and the ga- gas crisis and everything like that. And my father was in the car business. So uh, when all that started going on, he actually started doing pretty well because he was one of the first Honda and Nissan, which then was Datsun dealers in the U.S. And so... With that success, he bought uh, Philly season tickets. <laughs> he loved baseball, and um, he could never play baseball. He was a big fan of the game. He had, he was drafted, actually, into the Korean War era. and uh, But he loved Joe DiMaggio being Italian-American. He loved Ted Williams and, and the Phillies teams of the 60s, you know, with Dick Allen and all those. So uh, I think the Vets' first year was 71 or 72, if I'm correct, and, and when I was – I think it was maybe five or six years old. We went to a few games and eventually got season tickets in 76. So the Phillies were my uh, first favorite team. Obviously I remember your dad and um, we had talked a little earlier about other players like Dave Cash and Schmitty and Ollie Brown and the bull and Gary. Yes. Yeah. Downtown Ollie Brown. Downtown Ollie Brown, baby. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a great time to be a kid. I mean, I had four brothers, played Little League baseball. Um, you know, we used to have a great league. I mean, all the fun of growing up and being a kid in the area. And we loved hot dogs and just, just playing ball. It was a lot of fun. But as you – I heard a, a couple of discussions you've had with other guys, but we used to play other sports too. I mean, I made a, a, a bad attempt at basketball wasn't good at basketball. I actually played some golf. My dad was a big golfer. So I actually played four years of varsity high school golf in Phoenixville, which is interesting. And I still love the game today. Uh, and, uh, you know, we used to, of course, the Eagles fans, Flyers fans, Sixer fans. Uh, we, we, we really enjoyed growing up in the area. It was a lot of fun. Um, you mentioned your dad being the Nissan and the in Dotson. That that hits home for me because for young Bob Boone, you know, I remember uh, Pete Rose used to have, you know, whatever the newest Porsche was back in the 70s, he'd have. And Bob Boone was rocking the Datsun. He started with the 260Z, <laughs> went to the 280Z, the 280ZX. And I remember, yeah. yeah, I remember as a kid, I, it, Dad, what, when you get in the new Datsun, man. And then it turned into Nissan. Uh, you mentioned yeah, Ted Williams, too. Uh, you mentioned Ted Williams. I want to hear 
uh, Ted Williams story when you were a kid. Not too many people get him to come over to your house. I never got to meet Ted. I heard a million stories from my grandpa, uh, you know, at nauseam about his Ted Williams days. Gramps played at the end of his career uh, a couple of years with Ted in Boston. Uh, but you had a pretty cool story of Ted as a young kid. No, it was awesome. I mean, uh, my father, we, we, we didn't touch on the Tommy Lasorda relationship, but with his relationship oh, we'll get and there. friendship with Tommy, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they both uh, were from Narstown, Pennsylvania, Montgomery County. And because of my dad's relationship and friendship with Tommy, he, of course, knew all the local scouts and some former players. And, and one of them was a scout by the name of uh, Ed Libertor, Libertor, who was a scout for the Dodgers and Baltimore Orioles a little later. And Eddie was very close with Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. And so Ted was at the um, General Washington Motor Inn in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, doing an autograph show. And it was a Saturday or Sunday morning. And Eddie was hanging out with them the night before. And he said, you know, my, my buddy Vince has a, has a kid who's a pretty good hitter. Uh, and he's got a cage in the back of his house with an automatic machine. And, and Ted's like, let's go see him hit. So next thing I know, my dad's like, Ted's coming over to the house the next day. I warmed up the machine and started getting loose. And next thing, I mean, this big imposing figure comes in with a voice that you know, is, is, is without a doubt uh, is incredible. Very distinctive, deep voice, John Wayne type voice and uh, started watching me hit and gave me a few pointers on things and, and was impressed with my aptitude, the ability to, to, to take his pointers and put them into practice and, and made a prediction. And he said, there's just no doubt this kid's going to hit in the big leagues, which was, which is kind of crazy for me at the time. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. Hey, better, better. The Fall Classic is upon us, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the 2021 World Series, has a no-brainer offer you have to take a swing at. New customers can bet just $1 on any World Series game and win $100 in free bets if either team gets a hit. Now, while a double no-hitter would be pretty amazing. We're betting on some action. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get skin in the game this World Series with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a much bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings, safe, secure, reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So bet on that parlay, nail it, eat steak and crab legs that night. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E. Bet just $1 on any World Series game and win $100 in free bets if either team gets a hit. That's promo code BOONE at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the 2021 World Series. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Major League Baseball trademarks and copyrights are used with permission of Major League Baseball. Visit MLB.com. Thanks, Dan. And welcome back to the Boone Podcast with our special guest, Major League Hall of Famer, Mike Piazza. You know, your career, and it's it's so interesting because of the level of success you you acquired in the big leagues. And it, it but it wasn't always that way. I mean, you kind of you know, you yeah. went through high school, uh, you end up going to uh, University of Miami. 
Um, out of right. high school, how good of a player were you, Mike, in high school? Well, we, we, know the Mike, we, we know the Mike Piazza kind of, that I know. <laughs> we know the guy that just well, rakes, was, but, but tell me the story. It's interesting to me. Well, yeah, well, I was a high school first baseman and uh, had two very good all-state years. I mean, in my junior year, I hit like 545 and uh, 12 home runs in 17 games and like 45 RBIs, and I followed it up the next year with like a 450. And So, I mean, the scouts were coming out to watch me play. It was just, I think, uh, it was a little bit uh, immature as far as my growth and um, – um, without a position. I mean, I was a slow-footed first baseman, uh, had a decent arm. I went to, there was these classics in Pennsylvania, like these scouts games. And uh, the scouts kind of liked me, but they were just like, at the time, why don't you just go to school and, and see if you're going to be a first baseman? If not, uh, you know, we'll see if there's, we'll just follow up on you. And so I went to UM uh, and coming from the north and going to like a sunbelt school was very difficult because a lot of the kids down there played a lot more games and better competition and so i kind of had my career come to a halt and uh at the end of the year i was like well i I just don't think i'm going to play again this year so i decided to try to transfer to another school so i went to a junior college which was miami dade uh at the time there was three three teams and now there's only one but it was the north campus and they had some good ball players come out of there. I owe to be McDowell and uh, among other, a few big leaguers. So it was a good program. Uh, I played pretty well for one year. I hit like 360, two or three home runs, but I got hurt. I tore a ligament in my left hand. So I wasn't uh, really healthy around the time of the draft. And again, I was still playing first base. Uh, so I went undrafted. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. That's not the, the, the story. What the story is then uh, my dad called Tommy and said, look, uh, Mike uh, doesn't know what he wants to do, but, um, you know, if he get drafted, as you well know, it's kind of a little bit of a other schools. Will, schools will pay attention to that. Say, well, if the pros like him, then, uh, you know, we'll give him a shot. So um, the Dodgers just decided to give me a throwaway pick in the last round. So the 62nd round in the 1988 draft. And, um, a couple of schools called, uh, a couple of small NAIA schools or Division II schools called. And um, it was funny because that spring training, I went up to spring training and I swung the bat very well. And Tommy Lasorda said, you think this kid can catch? And Mark Cressy and Joe Ferguson, who were on the big league staff at the time, said, well, let's see him throw. And they were like, yeah, his arm's pretty good. I caught a few pop-ups and, and they thought it would be a possibility. They just kind of put it on the back shelf. But during that summer, Tommy said, look, I want, Mike, I want Mike to come out to L.A. and, and go through a, a tryout and have our scouts look at him. And I hit the ball extremely well. And Ben Wade said, well, we're going to follow him up again. And Tommy said, well, let me ask you, Ben, if, if he was a shortstop and he swung the bat like that, would you sign him? And Ben, ben said, absolutely. So he said, well, if he was a catcher and he swung the bat like that, would you sign him? And Ben said, Absolutely. And Ben and Tommy said, well, he's a catcher. <laughs> yeah, he's a catcher. And Ben then. was like, what? That's what he said. He's a catcher. And Ben was like, well, we've never seen him catch. And Tommy goes, he's going to catch. And so <laughs> Ben came down. Um, they gave me 15 grand to sign. And I started my career as a catcher. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's it's awesome because I mean you just don't think you didn't have that storybook re- recruiting. You know, it's not the the Alex Rodriguez uh, first pick overall. You you blow through and you and you end up being a Hall of Famer. This was like no, I kind of got a favor from from Tommy who was buddies with my dad. You know, the Godfather thing. Yeah, and then and then the rest is kind of history. You mentioned to me. Uh, you know, and he was a huge influence in my life. Uh, my grandpa, who passed away years ago, but especially as a young kid, yeah. I spent a lot of time with my grandpa, played for mm. a long time, uh, was a scout, though, for, for 40 years before he passed away. Yep. And you mentioned a story with Ray Boone, and I always love to hear Ray Boone's story. So tell the, the people listening to the Boone podcast your interaction with Grandpa Ray. Well, it was funny because I had gone to instructional league after the Dodgers signed me, and I started swinging the bat pretty well. I mean, I was as we had talked, I was always a pretty good hitter, and I started catching. And of course, I was rough. But your father was actually talking to um, I think it was Ben Wade behind the screen, and and one of our pitchers was there charting, and your grandfather said something like. Where the hell did they find this Piazza kid? He could effing swing the bat. And Ben was like, I, I, I can't understand it. I mean, I don't, I don't know, understand how we missed him. I mean, we had heard his name, but we just didn't think he was ready and we didn't think he had a position, but we'll see how catching pans out. But I remember my, my roommate was telling me that story. And then another story, as I mentioned to you earlier, is I was playing in the Florida State League. And F.B. Santangelo is a friend of mine. He broadcasts for the Nationals. And I wasn't really doing that well. I was kind of playing sparingly for the Vero Beach Dodgers. And uh, there was a game I was sitting, and Felipe Alou, who was the manager for the West Palm Beach Expos, said they were in the, in the clubhouse. And uh, F.P. told me, he goes, Felipe said, I can't believe that Piazza kid's not played. He can freaking swing the bat. And so, it, as you mentioned, it, it wasn't the easiest path, and I kind of had to earn my way. And I think it was because probably uh, I wasn't a high-round pick. They didn't have a ton of money invested in me. There wasn't a lot of pressure for them to develop me. So I just had to, to do it the, the hard way. I had to really, really work and try to try to kick the door open and, and fight for playing time and and, and then in, I went to Bakersfield, and they finally decided to give me a starting spot for the Bakersfield Dodgers in 1991, and I hit 29 home runs in the, in the Cal League that year. And, and you mentioned you got you got drafted in 88. Now, I, obviously, Mike Piazza doesn't need to be uh, – I don't need to sell you on what you've done, but I just want to tell you how weird it is for me. Okay, I'm in uh, – you know, I go through the typical draft, you know, uh, in 1990 out of USC and – and right away, I'm on that, you know, that quick path to the big leagues. I get to the PCL in 92. And we had a pretty good class that year, but there's no Mike Piazza. I've never heard of Mike Piazza. And I'm sitting there, and we're playing in Calgary, Canada. And they said, yeah, they called this catcher up for the Dodgers, you know, from double A AA to AAA. And I remember, you know, everybody, said, ah, who's this Piazza guy? So, so, so Mike steps in the box, and I mean, he just gives us a beating. To the point where, who the hell is this guy and why have I never heard of him before? I mean, I don't remember you making an out. That year, uh, Tim Salmon, I, I think he won the MVP of the league that year. And he was he was yeah, really yeah, that guy. Awesome. When you, you know, he hit like 370 in AAA. 
So he was kind of the guy, but I remember you coming and it was three or four weeks before the all-star game. And I remember you leaving Calgary and my whole team, that's all they could talk about was, wow, we have, you know, Salmon's been dominating the league, but who is this guy? And I remember seeing you going, that's that guy's as good as anybody I've seen play in professional. Ba- no, I hadn't been to the big leagues yet, but it's just that's what's amazing yeah. to me. I, I, I talk about the Piazza story. I said, you guys have no idea. This guy's coming from, you know, nobody had ever heard of him to to the yeah. to the career you had. Now, I don't usually sit here on the show and do that, but it is it's really a, a not your typical story of, uh, like I said, what what uh, proceeded in your career. But you also, I remember my dad, my dad calling me because my dad was yeah. uh, the manager at Tacoma. And he's like, Brett, you should sure. see this Piazza guy he just got called up. I, th- I think you gave him a beating, too. Yeah, the funny story was that I was in double A and we had a really good double A team. And, and just to digress just a little bit, I had gone to Mexico the year before uh, that offseason and played in the in the uh, Liga Pacifica in Mexicali, in Mexicali, as they say. And I had a really good year. And that was kind of when I really got confidence and realized I felt at that time I could hit in the big leagues. And I went to spring training and I had a really amazing spring training and had three home runs in, in, in the regular spring training games for the big league team and started in double A. But the funny thing about your dad was that I get called up from double A AA to triple A. I think it was early May. And I'd take like three flights to Tacoma. I mean, I had to go like, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Phoenix, Salt Lake, Tacoma, and I was exhausted. I get off the plane, and Billy Russell, who's the manager, says, you got to play today. We have a doubleheader. you got to play both games. Or, or I think I actually caught both games. And I went six for eight in the doubleheader, and after the, the last time I got a knock, Dan Howard, who was on first base, he said to me, this game's pretty easy, huh? <laughs> and I just started laughing because – for me, it was one of those stretches that the, the, the baseball looked like a watermelon coming. I mean, it just looked like a, a basketball coming in. And I was just smashing the ball, and I felt comfortable on, on any pitch. I was confident I could – and uh, as you well know, and maybe people remember, I could drive the ball to all fields with power. And it was just one of those things. I was in the right place at the right time. I had an opportunity, and things just clicked. And then my confidence took over, and, and – uh, uh, just just was blessed that uh, I stuck it out and came through and, and eventually got to the big leagues. In 92, you get called up, get your cup of coffee. And then 93, though, I mean, you're, you didn't just ease into this. 93, you're rookie of the year. You're an all-star. You're for your first full season, uh, 318, 35, and 112. And that starts the beginning of a pretty awesome Dodger run for you. Uh, you, you end up being yeah. an all-star the next 10 years. And the Dodgers had done it in the 70s, and then they did it again. You just had this unbelievable run of it went Karos, then you, then Mondesi, then Nomo, mm-hmm. then Hollinsworth. You had five all-star or five rookie of the years in a row. Yeah. And that's when you get reunited with, with Tommy Lasorda. And uh, just take me through that first year and just – you're, you're going from this 62 second round pick from a junior college to you're kind of the star in LA. Well, I mean, a lot of it again is, is definitely because of Tommy and the Dodgers at that time were very much into player development. I mean, we had Vero beach Dodger town and the place is kind of, I don't know if you've ever been there. It's very sequestered in, in a small town in Florida and, 
they had been there since after the war. And at that time, was they were the only West Coast team that had spring training in Florida. And it was about tradition. So um, it, it was great. And, and Tommy had always looked out to me. And the funny story was, at my first spring training, he would put us in big league games. And I remember going down to Palm Beach on a split squad game, and I go in to catch. I've never caught before. And the first hitter was Dale Murphy if you could believe that. And so you have this little, <laughs> this little turd, you know, out of, out of junior college. And here I'm in a big league game and Dale Murphy is hitting. And I just looked up and I'm like, what am I, who, what am I doing here? And, and so Tommy would do that. He would put us in these games. And at times it was a little bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Because Tommy was a, was definitely a controversial figure at times in the organization. So there was a little bit of politics and some of the coaches didn't like Tommy kind of looking out for me and, and doing things and favors and giving me equipment and stuff. But nonetheless, I, I, I stuck it out. And an interesting story about my rookie year was that Mike Sosha uh, was a very popular catcher. I mean, he'd been there many years and, the pitchers were like saying, well, let's sign Sosha the backup in case Mike struggles, you know, he then Sosha could come in. And Tommy was, was against it because Tommy said, look, I want Mike, to, I want these pitchers to know that Mike is the catcher regardless. I don't want Sosha kind of hanging over his shoulder. And if Mike struggles that the pitchers are going to, Hey, we want to throw to Mike because, you know, as, as you know, well, no, I mean, Mike was a great catcher and he was a veteran uh, guy and he was very popular. So, Tommy was always there looking out for me and, and uh, threw me out there. And, and so I give him all the credit in the world. And, you know, I got to know Tommy a little bit over the years, uh, obviously not like you did, but just playing against him, uh, him when I was a kid, Dodgers and the Phillies had a, had a pretty good rivalry. So I'd see him at, you know, at other functions that dad, I'd, I'd tag along with dad and, you know, just through, through my career. But I remember in 95, 95, you had another great year, 346, 32, and 93. You didn't have a bad year in, in, in L.A. ever. <laughs> but uh, and, and by the way, we whooped you that series in the 95. Uh, yeah, I, you guys were good. I remember Benito Santiago was the catcher. Yeah, I was catching. I was, but, I, I was a big ahead. fan of him when, I, when, I, uh, when he had first broken. So uh, he played very well for you guys. But, yeah, you guys had a very good ball club that year. But I remember the one thing about Tommy. Uh, that that kind of stuck with me to this day. We beat you. I, I, I forget what the what the series was, but we clinched in Cincinnati. And you know how you have the champagne celebration afterwards, and we're having a good time in in the Reds clubhouse. And Tommy Lasorda came in over right away, full uni. Uh, and he and, and I remember him making his way over, around that room and, and going up and individually shaking people's hands. He wasn't there to, to be a spectacle or, or to make a big deal about it. He was he yeah. was kind of he kind of did it in a very uh, stealth way. But he made his his rounds to each and every guy. And he shook his hand. I remember him coming up to me and kind of giving me that, you know, that grandpa hug and say and saying, Brett, hey well-deserved and you guys played a great game and you were the better team in this series. I thought it was just a classy move because you always see Tommy and he's boisterous and he's out there and he, you know, he's politicking and he's doing commercials. Uh, but that was kind of the, the, the yeah. human side of him. And I thought it was a class act and, and I've been lucky enough to be, 
you know, to the playoffs a few times. It's the first and only time that a manager actually did that. And that still stands out to me this day. He was one of a kind. You're absolutely right. And he loved the game and uh, he loved his players. I mean, I think it's, it's probably an, uh, an era gone by, uh, as we all well know, but uh, he really loved the players and uh, took us out to dinner all the time. We were young. He was looking out for us. He knew we didn't have a lot of money in the minor leagues, but he would take guys out all the time and uh, uh, absolutely loved the game. And, and, and I think you're right. I mean, everyone knows the public, Tommy, the persona, the, uh, the, the stories, the jokes, and, and the speeches. But there was a lot of things Tommy did under the radar that, as you, as you mentioned, that, that were really sincere and kind. And, um, I mean, I, as you mentioned, we talked, I talked to Eric Carroll every now and then. We always have great memories about Tommy's stories. I mean, we would go in there and tell him to change the lineup. And Tommy would be like, well, where do you want to hit? And then Tommy, Eric's like, well, hit Mike third and I'll hit four. And so, I mean, you know, <laughs> he was just that type of guy. He, was, he wasn't, he uh, was you know, my way is the highway. He just wanted really everyone to be happy. Of course, you had to play hard for the guy and he wanted to win. But uh, he really was, uh, he was one of a kind and, and obviously a big, uh, you know, we miss him, miss him dearly. 96, 336, 36, 97 is probably your best year ever. You only hit 362 with 40 that year. Um, your, your run in, in, in L.A. was was pretty darn awesome. Um, did you hit one out of Dodger Stadium? Yeah, I did off Frank Castillo. He hung a changeup to me. Uh, I think it was 95, uh, and I kind of sat on it. <laughs> and he threw it. I think it was 3-1. I said, he's going to throw me a change up here. And I just kind of, I drove it, but kind of scooped it out of the stadium. And I did a couple out of the stadium in batting practice. So I knew I it was possible. That. The conditions had to be right. Because as you well know, later it's in the ridiculous. games there, especially early in the year, it gets damp and uh, and, and windy and, and cold. So, um, yeah, I knew the conditions had to be right. It was, I think it was a Sunday night game. And I think it was a, a little early. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, w- it was a bomb. And it's funny you mentioned about the, the hitting. I mean, I tell people all the time, I hit 346, 336, and 360. And all three years, I finished third in the batting title. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm sitting there looking. I'm going through your numbers doing my homework, and I'm going, <laughs> wait a minute, I don't see any of that italic or that black ink. He's hitting three – he's not winning a batting title with these. <laughs> And uh, well, I had Tony Gwynn, of course, I had Tony yeah. Gwynn in my division, so that's uh, that's something for me. That, uh, but you know what, Booney? I mean, I always tell people, I always thank God for what I have, not for what I don't have. And and I think Tony Gwynn may be a better, better hitter. I mean, if I had to chase that guy, you couldn't have you couldn't think of a better guy in history to chase, and and so. Uh, he brought the best out of me, and he br- we brought the best out of each other. And we had a really good friendship, obviously a competitiveness on the field. Uh, but but And I feel like I made him better as well. I mean, I feel like he, he knew that I was there behind him. And there was other hitters too, I think, like Larry Walker and um, Ellis Burks, I think one year hit, had a great year in Colorado. But, yeah, it was uh, he brought the best out of me, and, and I really enjoyed competing against him. Yeah, I want to tell the people listening too. Hitting it out of Dodger Stadium is is like ridiculous. I remember there was that young kid. You know, he kind of got he got a little time in the big leagues. He was up and down. Billy Ashley, 
I remember oh, yeah. seeing him, I remember seeing him hit one out in BP. But BP's one thing, and and I think the most recent guy to do it was Tatis did it this year. And I have a son that just started. He just played his first year in A ball, and I was trying to explain it to him. I said, "Listen, when you hit it out of Dodger State, especially in a night game, I said it's ridiculous. I said I think there's only a few people that have done it. And I thought your name came. I said I think Mike hit one. I think McGuire did it. I said, but there's a real short list. So that ball that you're watching right there that's farther than you think and until you know let alone let alone a game at night but you know bp was tough enough to even get it close to hitting it out so uh pretty awesome not a big deal footnote but but i just wanted to to let the people know how how uh significant that is and and how rare it is yeah you got to square it up there no question and and uh that was another thing too. I mean, I, I played in Dodger stadium and then when I got traded to the Mets, uh, eventually Chase stadium is no picnic. I mean, the conditions there are not great in the spring. So, but again, instead of, uh, I think you have to use that to an advantage. I mean, I think when you know the ball doesn't carry in a ballpark, well, you, you may revert back to better hitting techniques and just driving the ball. And that, that was something for me that I really, prided myself on hitting the ball hard to all fields and, and not so much worrying about the home run, but hitting the ball extremely hard. And if it was meant to be, it's meant to be kind of not really worrying about the conditions. Cause you, I mean, I would go to Wrigley field, the wind be blowing out a hundred miles an hour. And I'd go like one for four with a broken back base hit. Cause I'm trying to like basically elevate everything and lift and pull. So sometimes that would work to a disadvantage if, if I felt like, uh, uh, the conditions were, were really good for hitting as well. So that's something I, I always tried to make a negative into a positive. All right, 98, kind of a weird turn of mm-hmm. events come. You get traded to Miami for a week, and then yeah. from there they turn it around and they send you to the Mets, which you, you pretty much spend uh, the second half of your career, but a lot of great years in, in New York. Um Tell me about that week for you and, and going from, well, I got a lot, I got a lot of questions about this, but that turbulent week, Miami to the Mets, uh, you're going from Tommy Lasorda to Bobby V and you're going from, you know, LA Hollywood to the big apple, uh, two of the biggest, uh, two of the biggest stages and, but, but are starkly different uh, from a fan base yeah. and, and just a way of life. So I know, I know that's a lot to throw at you, but try to try to tackle those three no. as good as you can. Well, I always believed I'd be a Dodger for life coming up through the organization the way I did and, and achieving what I achieved there. But, uh, the O'Malley, Peter O'Malley, who had owned the team, the O'Malley family was one of the last family owned teams, I think. By that time, Disney had bought the Angels and a bunch of corporate consortiums, I guess, were buying ball clubs. And so Peter O'Malley sold the team to Fox. And again, they had never done that. As, as new owners do find out in any new business, there's always a learning curve. And, and what I think the mistake of these corporate entities when they buy a team is they figure, they figure okay, well, we can do this well so we can do sports well. And sports is unlike any other business. It's just not, it's just, <laughs> you're not going to be able to tell the fans, oh, we're going to stick to a budget or so. You, you understand it's not, right. it doesn't really make, it's, it's, it doesn't translate. Like if you could sell 
cars or you can make computers or you can sell software. It's, it's not the same as sports. So when these corporations buy a sports team, um, they're just kind of learning as they go. It's kind of like riding a bike while it's moving, learning how to ride a bike while it's moving. So, so I think they came in and they kind of wanted to make a statement and they wanted to, to, to not give in to my demands. And maybe they had kind of had experience with that, like that with other employees, but we just had a bad contract dispute and we couldn't get it done and it went public and it turned ugly and the fans started actually turned on me. And there was actually one thing, there was this misconception or misinformation that I had blamed Vince Scully because he was talking about the contract and that's not true at all. Um, but of course, Vince, Vince Scully was uh, taking the team's position. He was basically saying that the Dodgers also offered a lot of money and, um, Mike uh, turned it down. And so I'm not saying that was the reason why I got traded, but there's, there's no question that, uh, and even putting aside what he had said, that it was just a toxic situation. So, uh, I had a bad first few weeks, uh, and then I started hitting the ball and I started really getting hot. Actually, the week they traded me, I hit three grand slams in one week, which was pretty interesting. Uh, and I was starting to come around and the fans were like going, Hey, give him what he wants. Let's sign him. And then they had traded me. So they had never even said, Hey, if you don't take the contract, we're going to trade you. So I went to the Marlins and they were dismantling their world championship team of 97 the year before. So I was traded for Sheffield and, and Charles Johnson, I think Eisenreich and Bobby Benilla. So I went to Florida for a week. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to, to play and, and, um, or at least be there, obviously, for long term, because they were going with the with, with the downsizing approach and the rebuilding approach. Uh, and uh, heard some rumors about going to some other teams, but eventually ended up in New York. And uh, uh, what a shock! I mean, going from LA to New York. I always say it's easier to go from New York to LA than <laughs> LA to New York. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> the. Uh... Yeah, and the stark differences of the media, and it's just every day. Because there's so many newspapers and blah competing for the headline. Uh, I I loved, and I got a, never got a chance to be you know a home player in New York, but I loved coming to see you guys for three or four days, and then I could leave. But but it is a rat race, and there's it's kind of a. I guess when you play in when you play in New York and you're a Yankee or you're a Met, there's kind of a yeah. different mindset you kind of have to have. Like, all right, this is the way it is, and and this is the way I've got to be because it's not going to go away. Yeah, true. No, I mean you think about it. Uh, the between the papers, you have the Times, Daily News, the Post, the New York Star Ledger. I mean, uh, Long Island Newsday, and each paper has a couple of beat guys and then columnists and then the, the radio and TV. And, I mean, every game uh, before and after the game, you, you have tons of media obligations. And a lot of times, even games where you, where you didn't even play. Um, we'd be going on a road trip. It was like a Sunday day game. I didn't even play. And, and the media would come up and say, hey, we want you to comment on the road trip or the game today. And so, yes, it, it is for a lot of players, they, they didn't enjoy it. A lot of players couldn't handle it uh, because – of that uh, sort of cauldron, so to speak. And if you struggle, if you're not doing the job, the fans are demanding. Uh, but as I've said before, I mean, I had this ability, uh, inner ability to focus and try to make the best out of any situation. And 
I just buckled down and uh, internalized all uh, what I needed to do and, and focus on the field and, and started coming around. I mean, I wasn't hitting very well when I got to New York, but eventually I swung the bat extremely well at the end of 98 and ended up signing there and, and had eight great years. Yeah, your first year in New York, 303, 40, 124. Uh, and in 2000, a pretty, pretty cool year for the, for that city. You had a, <laughs> I'm sick of saying it. You had 324, 38, 113, <laughs> but you went to, uh, that was the subway city. That was the world series between the yeah. Mets and the Yankees, man, that had to be, that city had to be un. I mean, it's, it's crazy anyway, but to have the Mets and the Yankees in the world series, just speak to that, how awesome of a year it was and, and uh, what that brought, how that, I would think it it was the city, you know, probably you've never seen it at that level of, of chaos. Yeah. Just, I couldn't imagine. Talk me through that a little bit. Well, well, you know, the interleague game started in 97. And so that actually was a, was a, was a prelude. I mean, 98, uh, we had the one series against the Yankees at Shea. I think I was not there for the first one. And then 99, we had some amazing games against the Yankees, both home and away. Uh, so it was kind of building. I think we, we lost to the Braves in 99. People had thought 99 was probably going to be the year of the Subway Series because both teams were very good. Uh, and then 99, we lost to the Braves in the, in the NLCS uh, in this game six. And then uh, 2000, I think we kind of snuck up on people. I don't really think people were expecting us to, to uh, have a chance to get to the World Series. But uh, Johnny Olerud, who was an amazing hitter, signed to Seattle, and we brought Todd Zeeland, and Todd played very well. And we brought in some role players and had some surprise guys that really stepped up. Uh, and we got hot at the right time uh, and, and really – uh, as you said, it was, it was amazing. I think it was the first subway series since 1956, if I'm not mistaken. And the coolest thing about the subway series was, uh, before game one at Yankee stadium, Bobby Valentine says to me, Hey Mike, uh, come over here. I come in my office. Someone wants to say hi. And Yogi's sitting there and he goes, Hey Mike, you saw a few balls for me. And I said, yeah, sure. Yogi, anything you need. And we started talking. I said, man, you guys, uh, it's pretty late for you. When did you guys finish the World Series? He goes, yeah. He goes, season was over at the end of September. He goes, by October 7th, the World Series was over. So how times have changed. But I remember that distinctly. It was, it was a cool moment. All right. And I got to bring it up. Uh, the Clemens incident. I know you, I know you've never been asked about it before. I still watch it. No. <laughs> and, no, I, no. and I laugh at, I laugh at Roger. I thought it was the ball. I was getting the ball out of the way. Yeah. I, I, well, do you have a question about it? Or you just kind of want me to kind of, I, mean, I kind of just want to talk. I mean, have it. you talked to, have you talked to Roger about it? Cause we both been through the Roger rigger, yeah. you know, we both got hit in the head by him. Yeah. So we know, uh, I kind of, me and Roger are cool. You know, I, I was at an all-star game and his son was a middle infielder and I signed a few yeah. things for him. So it's kind of water under the bridge for me. Yours was a little more public. <laughs> you know, it happened on a bigger stage. Yeah. But what's going through your mind when he when he throws it? Yeah, I mean, you're kind of like you just jam well, the, the first, crap the out of me. Ball, are you, are you the serious? The ball went through the mind. <laughs> yeah. Said what goes through your mind? I said the first time was the ball. Um, 
No, listen, I, I don't I, I don't know if he's really even talked about it publicly. My whole thing was I obviously before I was kind of wearing him out and I, I think I was eight for 12 off him, I believe, with like three home runs. And um, he's from that old school, the Nolan Ryan, Texas uh, uh, sort of mentality. And uh, I kind of knew eventually he was going to brush me back. I kind of felt that. So I wasn't really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I didn't think it was, uh, I kind of expected it and I was going to stay loose, but I don't know. I think at the end of the day, I just got him so frustrated. He just decided to try to take my head off. I mean, maybe he didn't mean to try to kill me, but he, but it almost did. And then um, to get to the World Series, I mean, I met, obviously wasn't happy about it. Uh, but nonetheless, I was out a few days and, and came back in 2000, ended up having a good year. And then when the World Series came around, I, you couldn't really predict anything any more bizarre. I mean, I, I you couldn't do you could, it couldn't happen. If you tried it a million times after that, you, you would never have where the bat breaks and the actual bat goes to the mound. And, and I, I think maybe the only thing I could think of is he was probably so, there was just so much adrenaline and so much energy because the moment of that matchup was so overplayed and so uh, hyped up in the media. Uh, and, and who knows? I mean, again, I can't speak for him. Uh, he's never really talked about it, uh, but Maybe he just reacted or thought I was throwing the bat. I don't know. And then, of course, everyone has an opinion about it. I mean, I've had every opinion. You should have went out and fought him. You handled yourself with class. Uh, it, it goes the, the spectrum. A lot of people, are, I think maybe New Yorkers in general, just to be specific, are kind of 50-50 on it. But an interesting thing about that game is the game where he threw the bat was like, I'm going up against Je Jeff Nelson in the ninth inning, and – I don't know if you remember him. He was incredibly nasty for a right-handed hit, uh, hitters. And I said to myself, it, it, we were kind of creeping back in the game. And uh, I said, man, I got to just sit middle in here and try to hit it off the foul pole because I'm not even going to touch that slider. And when you know he throws me a ball middle in, I hit it off the foul pole. <laughs> and so talk about having a game that is so bizarre on one hand and so exhilarating and satisfying on the other they hit a home run. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was bizarre. We, we ended up losing the game and obviously the series, but, uh, it's something that uh, I've had to carry around because it's something that people obviously remember. And so, especially being in New York on that stage, it's gotten a lot of hype over the years and Hey, I, I talk about it. I mean, what are you going to do? It is part of my history. And, um, uh, I think going back though, just all things considered, uh, uh, I would think that he probably would have some regrets about it. But again, I can't speak for him, so I don't know. But but I saw him one time at a golf tournament. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, time moves on. Uh, you know, if he wanted to fight, I guess we would have fought. But it was just like, hey, what's up? What's up? And there was uh, really no <laughs> animosity. I mean, it just time time has a way of just mellowing you out a little bit, I guess. And you said it's kind of split. You know, I watched that just as a peer, as another player. I, I don't think I, – I think I was so thrown off by it. Like, wait wait a minute. Yeah. It's like it, it's it's not even like we're going to fight. A fight is he, he tells you he's going to hit you, and he hits you, and you decide right then to go. That was so bizarre that, wait a minute, you just jammed the crap out of me. My bat's at – you just yeah. threw <laughs> – did you really just throw my bat at me? 
I, I think it was almost like you were stunned. Like that didn't really happen. You know, you don't even think about fighting. You just think this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. You're really throwing the bat. And now you're going to go after the game and say, I thought it was the ball. So I, I kind of, well, I don't, I don't know what it's I would have done. I, I think I would have been just shocked. Well, I walked out there and I basically said, dude, what's your freaking problem? What's your problem with me? I said, do you, do you want to go? And then that's when he said, uh, that's when he said, I thought it was the ball. And I look at Charlie Relliford, who was the umpire. And he, he said, let's go, let's go. I'm like, let's go. I go, are you serious? What, what, what do you mean? And, and <laughs> then the, the, the benches came out and there was the scrum and then there was some yelling and then it was just so bizarre. As you mentioned, I mean, it was probably one of the most surreal, bizarre moments in the history of the game. Uh, I'm glad at least there was some good baseball in between that uh, people kind of, I don't want to say, no, I don't think anybody forget about it, but again, I choose to consciously just kind of suppress it. But yeah, on, on a scale of one to 10 on the, on the freak weird factor, I guess it's gotta be a 10 plus, but um, yeah, it's just something so bizarre. And it was a funny story too, because my friend who's a big karate guy and, and there was a story that came out that I practiced karate before the world series, but he said, cause he said, well, what if he hits you again? And I said, what? I said, I said, I got to go get him because if he drills me in the world series, I'm like, I, obviously he's, he's trying to take me out. I got to go get him. So we were kind of going through some moves. And then after the game, my friend, John, he says, I didn't know he was going to throw the bat at you. We didn't rehearse that one. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, un- it's unbelievable. About, yeah. Talk about strange, man. But uh, yeah, look, um, I, I would think that he would have regrets about it. I, I don't, I, I just think it kind of took away from the game and, you know, I've gone to shows and people wanted me to sign shit about it. And I was like, get that out of here. You know, I don't, I don't really, I, I choose just to, to just kind of turn the page on the whole thing, but it, it is what it is, man. You just have to, you just gotta try to just move on and try to make some sense of it, I guess. Uh, had Tino Martinez on the program uh, a few months back. And um, I, I think we all remember uh, as players where we were when 9-11 hit. Uh, I was with the Mariners. I was in, in Anaheim. And I remember waking up, you know, because we were on the West Coast. So in the middle of the oh. night, I get woken up. And, you know, everybody kind of, we, we probably all had the same reaction. Like, what is happening? Uh, where were you on, Tino told me his version. Uh, where were you in 9-11? Where were the Mets? Yeah, we were in Pittsburgh. And uh, I think Tuesday morning, uh, we had watched the Monday night football game. I don't remember the game. So we had a bunch of guys in the hotel bar, and we were just kind of having a few beers watching the, watching the game. And uh, I think Monday was a day off for us. We went into Pittsburgh. We were staying at the Vista, which was the West End, which was another hotel. And then um, about 9, 10, 9, 15, I, get 10, I guess 9:10, I get a call in my room and I'm like, well, who the hell is this? Cause we had all used aliases. This is probably when cell phones were just coming in to, to, uh, on a, on a more permanent basis, but still we used the hotel line and, and I was like, what the hell? I, I had a do not disturb on my, uh, on my phone. And it was at the time my agent Danny and he was like, turn on the TV. They got us, man. They got us. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? and uh, turn on the TV. And as soon as I turned on the TV and I saw it, I knew exactly what it was. I knew it was terrorism. I knew that they had hijacked the plane and flown it in there. It was, it was very strange that I kind of figured that out without actually knowing anything. Because when he's like, is it an accident? I said, there's no accident. I go, you don't accidentally fly into, into the World Trade Center. I mean, especially an airliner. Uh, 
Um, anyway, yeah, it, it was so bizarre. We, I think we had a day um, where we checked out of the hotel because there was a, there was a federal building across the street and there was cops everywhere. And there was rumors of there was enough more attacks and there was more planes. So we went to a small hotel outside of Pittsburgh uh, in a small town. And then the next day we checked out and drove back to the city and coming up route 78 or highway um, interstate 78 there and coming to Manhattan and seeing uh, empty spot where the World Trade Center used to be was one of the most surreal moments uh, that that anybody could ever experience. Um, so it was, yeah, it was it was an incredible, tragic, sad um, moment that is tattooed in your memory that we'll we'll obviously never forget. And you mentioned earlier Johnny Olerud. You know, he was a teammate of mine that year in Seattle, and. Uh, we played in the postseason against the Yankees that year. And I remember uh, we got to town. They said, hey, there's a bunch of us going down to ground zero. We went down there. And, and you're right. It, it's like we I think we had cell phones, but but we couldn't take pictures because nobody, you know, I don't have any uh, I don't have yeah. any pictures from the scene. But I just remember uh, another time in, in my life that'll stand out. It's just sitting at ground zero and that and the ashes still oozing. And this is, you know, this is weeks, weeks later uh, in the postseason. Sure. It, unbelievable. But uh, all right, we're getting to the to the uh, the home run. And and I remember just having internal talks with the te- with uh, teammates. And I'm sure you guys with the Mets had the same internal talks of what are we going to do here? Because there was about a week where there was a lot. Are we going to play? Are we not going to play? And I think, you know, overwhelmingly as players, we decided, you know, we need to go forward. We need to play. This is this is part of the healing process is is being out in the field, entertaining people, getting them away from from what just happened. But you have that moment that, you know, we all we all dream of having. It was it was pretty unbelievable. You hit that huge home run. And if we're lucky as players, um, you know, we have few times in our career we get those serious goosebumps. That had to be one of those moments for you rounding those bases at uh, at Shea uh, right after 9-11. No question. And uh, going over, at least recalling the emotions of that week, it was probably astounding that we had actually gotten through the game uh, on, a, on a physical and an emotional level, too, because you, as you well know, to play to play the game, you have to be you got to have an edge. Uh, you have to have a mental edge. I talked to Ron Darling about this recently. It was ironic. I was in New York a few weeks ago, and I had said something like, "Sometimes I didn't feel like I really enjoyed my career and, and had fun." And he said, "You got to keep that edge." And and I kind of ultimately remembered what he had, what he was referring to. So when something like that happens, and you start to question everything, I guess, for lack of a better word, just because of, of, of the tragedy and the sadness and all the emotions. And then when we were out there and um, the police, uh, the, the honor guard came out with the bagpipes. And I, and anytime I heard bag, anytime you hear bagpipes, you can't help but, but get emotional. And, and on the ball field there in front of a, a, a big crowd, I just remember getting wobbly and saying, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And my faith in God, I, I just looked up to God and I said, Lord, please help me get through this night. I mean, just, just, I just want to finish. I, I want to finish as, and try to be professional and try to do my job. And to, to be in that moment uh, of time and, and in the right place at the right time, 
And there's times in your career and in your life where an incredible calmness just comes over you and the moment slowed down and I had faced Cars a few times. I knew he had a great arm and he threw hard and he was proud of his fastball. And the, the interesting thing though, and on a funny note is I took a fastball. I usually do take a strike. I mean, I, I just always like to take a strike in, in certain situations of just to kind of a timing thing. Yeah, I'd ambush guys occasionally when I when I felt like I comfortable, but I I always liked to take in a pitch or two. And so I took a strike and I said, man, that might be the best pitch I'll get this whole bat. <laughs> and he came right away. He came right back and tried to to do the same thing. I think he left it out over the plate a little bit and just squared it up and 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 hit a hit a really nice ball to center field and to have people still remember that and the emotion and, and all the people from years after remembering and telling me how much that they enjoyed it and how much joy it brought them. And, and it was a little bit of a, of a diversion because of everything that had transpired that week is something that, uh, I mean, it's on my hall of fame plaque. Um, so it'll be with me forever, even when, uh, when I'm, uh, when I'm gone. So it's, uh, it's, it's one of my most, if not my most proud moment in the game, no question. No, and it was really cool. I mean, on a human level, uh, just, you know, the players around the game, the big league players at that time. I, I remember being in Seattle and, and bringing that flag out. And we had our own ceremony. But that can't – you can't replace being in New York where it happened. And as players around the around the game, when you hit that home run, it was cool. It, it's kind of like just for a moment because when we played you, we wanted to beat your ass. <laughs> But for that one moment sure. watching you around the bases, I, you know, I think none of us could help but go, that is awesome right there. And it was just you, – you mentioned it. I mean, it's on your Hall of Fame plaque. It's just a time in history, in the history of Major League Baseball, that, that will always be there. And, and uh, as a peer, it, it, was, it was a really cool, real cool thing. Well, thank um, you. And, and, I mean, as nature, I, I, I just think it's – it's tough, as you well know, because this game is so humbling. But the one thing I do enjoy is the fact that uh, that that people have been so uh, have been so complimentary about it. It's something that I'll always uh, love reflecting on. So thanks, I, I really appreciate it, man. Uh, so you play for the Mets through through '05 and and '04 and '05. You're an All Star both those years. Uh, you sign a one year deal with the Padres. And, and you finish it up with Oakland from going from L.A. to to New York. Uh, Padres, a little different, a little laid back. I played there one year in 2000 mm. and then and then finish it up in Oakland in the Love Bay it. Area. Uh, yeah. How were the last few years for you? And, and uh, ultimately, you decided to retire. Uh, there's a time for yeah. all of us. Uh, what was your ultimate decision process? Well, I loved it. As you mentioned, I, I played in San Diego 2006 and after eight years in New York and I knew they were going a different direction. They had Willie Randolph as manager. And I don't, I don't feel that I was probably as his, one of his choices. And instead of sort of going in the media and saying, Hey, I want to stay, give me a deal. I was like, look, it's time to move on. That both of us, the team and, and myself knew it was time to move on. And I loved it. I played for Bochi and Kevin Towers. Uh, Kevin, God rest his soul, was a great guy. Uh, we had a really cool team. You know, we, we had uh, Woody Williams and obviously Hoff and, and um, uh, Vinny Castilla. 
and just a bunch of guys. We just had a lot of fun. Uh, Doug Brocao, guys. I mean, we just we had some veterans. We had some young kids. Uh, Josh Barfield. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I was blessed. I played with a couple of uh, good catchers, so I didn't have to to catch every day. Boach just just knew how to use me. The fans were great. It was such a it was a lot of fun. We won the division. I played really well. I think I had like 23 home runs. Swung the bat well, and then. I went to Oakland, uh, as you said, to finish up, and, and, and I kind of got hurt early in the year. It wasn't the best experience. Um, it, I, I don't like to, to, to complain. I mean, I appreciate the opportunity, but I, I, I have regrets about that. I just I wish I would have gotten a little bit more opportunity when I came off the DL. It is what it is. And then, I, I, as you well know, I mean, I came from an entrepreneurial family, so at 36, 37 years old, I said to myself, it's time to hang them up. Uh, come from a family business. We're in the car business in Philly and real estate. And I just started my family and I, I didn't want to try out again. I had a few calls from teams that, that at the time were not going to be in the running. So I said, unless it's a, uh, a contending team, I, I just decided to turn the page and I don't regret it. I mean, I, I look back in my career and everything I'd accomplished and all the friendships and relationships and experiences. And, um, but I knew it, it was, it was just time to turn the page. And, um, yeah, ever since then it's, it's been, it was tough as you well know, retirement's not always easy the first few years, but then you find your niche, you get back in the gym and you get your golf game down and you, and you have your, 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 your spots that you go to get away and, and just enjoy the kids raising and raising a family. So it's, uh, it's been, been an amazing, amazing, amazing journey for me. 308 career and I, and I like to to talk about that with the guys uh, that do have a 300 career average because I think in today it's it, for some reason it's been cheapened and you know I, I hit 300 a couple times but when I come across a guy that that's a 300 career I want to I want to shout from the rooftops how hard that is to do to, to hit 300 let alone a year at a time, but a career. And what do you think about the current game? How, how it is kind of cheapened a little bit. They don't, they don't look at average. And I always say, listen, the bottom of the ninth against that nasty specialist closer. I want a guy with a three in front of his, in front of his average number hitting. <laughs> I don't want a guy with a high on base percentage. I could care less. Cause you mentioned Hoffie in San Diego. Hoffie ain't going to walk you. Mariano Rivera ain't going to walk you. So I need somebody that can no. get a hit. And, and I think it, it really bothers me. And I wasn't 300 career. Like I said, I did it a couple times, but, but I have so much respect for, for that number and doing it on a, on a, you know, on a huge sample size scale. Um, what do you think about today's game and them, and them not, not giving it the credit mm-hmm. that I think it deserves? Well, I don't want to sound like that old guy that get off my yeah. lawn, you know, back right. when we played, you know, I, right, right. Back when we played, we played, uh, I, I think it's a little, yeah, it's a little disappointing. I, I think the biggest thing for me was I looked up something a few years ago and something about in the history of the game, the guys who had struck out the most. And of course, in the days prior to our era, there was guys that struck out a lot, Harmon Killebrew, Reggie Jackson, among others, but I mean, I said, I think since 2000, I mean, they, they've, the what? it's not that the 300, because if you still hit 280, you're still hitting the ball pretty well. You're still uh, spraying the ball and getting your hits and getting your walks and all those things. But I mean, the strikeout, 
180 times or 170 times. It's so bizarre to me. I mean, I, I, I said this all the time. The difference between hitting 250 and 300 and 100 at bat is five hits. Five hits, if you think about it. So if you strike out, you know, 60 times in 100 at bats, it's just beyond bizarre. But I should say that maybe 40 times. Out of those 40 times, just put the ball in play. You'll get five more hits. So, um, and watching Tony Gwynn and, and the good hitters of our era, uh, I, I just couldn't stand it. It drove me crazy when I struck out. I would get physically sick if I struck out. I, I just didn't enjoy it. And um, the one year I hit 360, I'll never forget it. I, I, I had to get a hit and a walk. I'd get two a game. I, I forget who it was. Someone said to me, two a game, dude, two a game. And I said, yeah, I got to get two hits a game. And I was hitting to, to hit 360 in the last half of the season. So, yeah, I, I, I well, as you well know, I, I liked hitting the ball to all fields. I would, I, and I just like making contact. And if, if they were doing a shift on me, I think one year, Renee Latchman, who was a manager of the Marlins, he tried to put the second baseman behind second base a little bit because I had a lot of balls up the middle. And I, so what I do, I hit two base hits to where the second baseman used to be. So, I mean, I, 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 so it doesn't make sense to me. So I guess it's not so much the guys not hitting 300, but I mean, to strike out 150 times that, that to me is a little bizarre. You're right, because I was good for 100 strikeouts a year. And I felt, Mike, when I struck out my 100 times, I really felt like I would go back. I felt like I struck out every at bat. And that was 100 times. I couldn't imagine doubling that. And I don't know, I'd be in a straitjacket. You're right. And it's like it affects you like you're you're in the corner and you got a twitch when you're striking out that much. And I don't know. I don't know. And one of the things that I, I mentioned, I mean, when I retired with Oakland in 2007, I mean, I was replaced by Jack Cust, who's a super kid. And I like him. He's a nice guy. He was with San Diego the year before. And when I came back off the DL, uh, Billy Bean was like, well, you know, we, Jack's our DH now. And I said, look, I love Jack. I go, but he strikes out too much. And I think the, the next year after me, he struck out 185 times. I mean, I think he had like 11 singles that year. I mean, I think he obviously had a few home runs. He had great power, but, uh, and that's personally, when I looked inside and said, this is the way the game is going, then this game is not for me. I, it, it, it's not for an aging catcher who, you know, maybe hit two eight at the time I could hit 280, 285. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's the one thing for me. I don't, I don't get, I, I like base runners. I think it makes the game more interesting. I love hitting runs and, moving runners along and it's just a little bit more like a chess game instead of just going for the pump every time and going for the bomb. The, the home run's exciting. Yes. Um, and a lot of these guys are stronger and they're hitting balls in the seats at will. And there's a lot of great players. The athleticism is better. They're training better. They're faster. They're better athletes. You're not going to see a lot more. Uh, you're not going to see John Cruck anymore in the league. You know, it's just not going to happen. Right. <laughs> he's a, he's a, he's a relic. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, there's some great parts of the game that I enjoy, and there's parts of the game that it makes me cringe a little. But I'm sure, like, that's with any anything. So uh, we'll always love the game. We'll always love what it gave me. It gave me a great life and um, owe everything to it. So I, I prefer to stay somewhat positive. <laughs> um, so much made about your career and, and your offensive prowess. Uh, let's talk about D a little bit. You, you caught two no-hitters. 
uh, Hideo Nomo and Ramon Martinez, who I remember Ramon. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't remember Ramon. He was Pedro's big brother, and he was nasty. He was one of the few yep. guys, Mike. And I remember coming to L.A., and we were both young players and going, if he had his fastball and he was locating his fastball, he was one of the few guys that could throw fastball every pitch and still win a game. I, I truly believe that. Uh, you caught him. Um, tell me about those two no-hitters, how cool they were. Yeah, well, the first one, as you mentioned, I think it was against the Marlins. It might have been, uh, I think it was either 94 or 95. So it was young in the Marlins. They didn't have what was their world world championship team. But still, funny thing you mentioned was he didn't throw a fastball after the third inning. And, or excuse me, he did not throw an all-speed pitch after the third inning. Everything was fastball. So, yes, I mean, that, that was true. His ball moved a lot. He would cut. He would sink it. Um, wasn't easy to catch. But, uh, yeah, when he was on, he was really nasty and um you know, Ramon and I had an interesting relationship. We didn't always have the best of uh, – we didn't always get along very well, but we respected each other, and, and I caught a lot of great games for him and hit some home runs for him too. Uh, Nomo, uh, you know Nomo, man. <laughs> Nomo mania. He, yeah. was, uh, he was definitely um, a phenomena, uh, one of the, the first modern Japanese player. There was a Japanese player in the 60s that, that pitched a little bit for the Giants. But he was one of the first guys to to come to the United States, actually the first modern guy, and and paved the way for all the other Japanese players after that. Um, Hideo was an amazing guy, man. He just, I mean, came in, he threw that nasty split. He had three versions of it. He had a get-over one. He had a, a, a strikeout one. He had one that he actually cut a little bit. He was tough. I mean, didn't care. <laughs> He would like be funny about throwing runners out. I mean, I think he would get a guy on first and second. They would they would steal second and third, and they would strike out the side. He didn't even he didn't even look at runners because he just didn't get, he just knew he was going to strike it. He was going to strike somebody out. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. And and to be in Coors Field, I mean, the Coors Field game, it's on YouTube. I mean, it's still interesting to watch because uh, talk about to, to pitch a no hitter in Coors Field with the altitude, the size of the field, the way the outfielders, how deep they play, uh, was something I just don't know if it'll ever be duplicated. I, I don't think so. Jump to 2016. Mets retire your number. Um, pretty awesome. You know, a lot of guys get in the hall, get into the Mets Hall. I'm not a lot of guys, but there's one thing being in the Mets Hall of Fame, then getting your number retired to a different level. But that's the the year you get the big call uh, from Cooperstown. Yep. Cooperstown. When I got, when I have a Hall of Famer on, I, I always like to ask, just take me through that day. And, and you know, you look at wow. your, your body of work and you kind of go, well, of course, Mike's got to get in. It, to all of us on the outside, of course. And, and inside, you know that you deserve to be in there. But but I talked to so many guys and they go, yeah, Brett, it, I knew I was going to be in. But until you get that phone call, you don't really believe it. Take me through that that Hall of Fame phone call. Yeah, I mean, uh, just you try to you try to downplay it because, as you said, it's kind of like you don't want to set yourself up for disappointment. And I had come close the years before and 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 that year there was a little bit of me that was like, yeah, come on, it's going to happen this year. So, so I wasn't a hundred percent, uh, um, sort of reserved, I guess would be the word, but, uh, yeah, to, to the finality of it, to the, as you said, to, to kind of really, to, to kind of 
finally get the, the, the call and to be in that fraternity and to go through that year to, to go to Cooperstown. And, and I, I was so blessed because I went in with Junior and you, you know, Junior, what a great guy he was. And talk about an incredible dichotomy. I mean, an absolute opposite of what I had experienced and what he had experienced being the first overall pick superstar, um, athletic, uh, making a, a quick rise to the big leagues and first round pick for the last round pick and two different versions. So that year was really interesting and special. And uh, we had, we have a great friendship. We play golf occasionally. I see him and um, yeah, it was, it was something that you just can't describe. I mean, to go up there and to, to see Johnny Bench and Schmitty came because I told him I was going to mention him in my speech. And, and so he had, hadn't been there in a while. And he, so, so to see Schmitty and Reggie Jackson and Wade Boggs and all these guys and hang out with them and just, just, just go through that weekend. Um, as a ball player, I don't as close to heaven on earth as you can get. Absolutely. And, and now that the pandemic is, is hopefully winding down, I look forward to getting up there and, enjoying it just as sort of a guest at the wedding instead of being uh, a bride or a groom at the wedding. And, and that's fun too. So uh, an amazing club, by far the, the, the most, um, I want to say significant hall of fame in sports. And I've had other people in other sports say that. So that's, that's no question. Uh, um, definitely a special, special club to be in. Well, Mike Piazza, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Uh, one of the best to ever do it. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dano. Gentlemen, how are you? Good, man. Thank you. All right. This one comes from Jen in Salt Lake City, and she wants to know this. I've seen documentaries before, and you were courtside for that Dr. J slam dunk where you wrapped it around and dunked it over uh, Michael Cooper. Tell us about that. That is correct. That is correct. I, I remember that was the 83 Sixers, and I mentioned earlier I was a big Sixers fan, and my dad scored some tickets on the court side. And I think I was 14 years old, and being a Sixers fan, you're obviously a Dr. J fan, and Dr. J was one of my idols growing up. And to be on that, uh, that video and that iconic moment uh, is, yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's like a Where's Waldo or a, maybe the original photo bomb, I guess. <laughs> and uh, Eric Davis was watching a film of that on a plane one day. I said, hey, rewind that. I said, see, I see that guy in the red shirt. And he said, yeah, I go, that's me. He goes, that's you. I said, yeah, that's me. And so, yeah, that's, uh, I'm forever in the, in the Dr. J documentary. And they, I think HBO did a, one a few years ago. And uh, I had mentioned that. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he was an idol. I, if you grew up in Philly in the 70s and the early 80s, you could not be a Dr. J fan. So big, uh, big feather in my cap, no question. I hated the Sixers, but I love Dr. J. <laughs> Everybody's a Dr. J fan. I hated the Sixers, but I was always like, that guy could fly. We got another question. Awesome. We got another question. This one comes from Mike in St. Louis, and he wants to know, Mike, what NL pitcher gave you the hardest time during your career? Wow. Good question. Uh, NL pitcher, I mean, believe it or not, uh, 
when I was swinging the bat well, I didn't really feel like there was guys uh, that gave me trouble. When I wasn't swinging the bat well, I felt like everyone gave me trouble. I I think uh, the guys that I really – I would say the only guy I ever feared was Mike Jackson, the reliever for the Giants and the Astros. He was kind of scary. I said, you know what, let me just take my at-bat here and, and over and, and take it the next game. Um Kim, the, the the guy who had pitched in the World Series for Arizona, was tough on me. El Duque was tough on me. I didn't swing the bat well off of El Duque. But um, so as far as guys that I remember not swinging the bat well off of, I would say that would probably be the, the, the team. All right. And last question comes from Paul, and he lives in, in uh, Syracuse and wants to know, the mustache, when did you decide to grow that thing? And have you ever gone without it? Uh, I did go without it a few years. Uh, no, I don't know. I've never played without facial hair. Uh, I remember, I don't know where I read, but uh, I read somewhere that uh, a certain team, it might have been the A's, that Charlie Finley would pay his players to grow facial hair. <laughs> and it was kind of like something they had thought was intimidating. So when I had first come up, the Dodgers had a rule that you couldn't have a mustache below the lower lip. You could have a mustache, but you couldn't have like a Fu Manchu or a goatee. And uh, I would have this real thin goatee and Tommy would always threaten to find me. And I used to try to see how thin I could get it. So he wouldn't see it. I was hoping he wouldn't with his <laughs> eyesight wouldn't be able to pick it up. And so it was just, <laughs> it's true. It was purely superstition. And it just, as a player, it, it was something for me that I thought it made me look a little more intimidating. And as Booney will tell you, uh, we're looking for any edge possible. So now that uh, I still wear one today because now, I mean, I, I tried it a few years without it. It's actually, I just feel more comfortable wearing facial hair. So I still have a goatee today, even though it's graying. I got to use the, the coloring now to cut that on the gray. But uh, yeah, so that's the story back from the Charlie Finley days. I was going to say, the difference between a free dinner and not a free dinner in L.A. probably lies on that mustache. Yeah, no question about it. Yep. <laughs> Mike Piazza, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Looking forward to hearing the uh, uh, the next one you guys do. I enjoy your work very much. Thanks, Michael. Mailbag. Hey, Booter. Yeah, Dan. You know that sound, don't you? <laughs> oh, I do, Dan. It's got to be mailbag time. Mailbag! Boone, as somebody who watches a lot of baseball, and this comes from uh, Jeff in uh, Schaumburg, he wants to know, as somebody who knows a lot about baseball players, they got a lot of fan mail. What was the strangest thing somebody has ever sent you, fan mail-wise? Oh, you know... I- Nothing really strange, maybe a, a clothing item, but you get to a point where, um, you know, I did it for a long time. The family, I would, I would, especially when I was young and, and just coming up, uh, you'd, you'd answer as much as you could. And then you get to a point where people know that you answer the fan mail and there's just bags and bags and bags. So for years I would just put return to sender. Uh, but I would say probably a clothing item, you know, still to this day, I, I try to, to get back and, and interact with fans, uh, as much as I can sign as many things as I can, but yeah, um, not too many weird stuff for me. I, I wasn't caught up in any, any, any weird <laughs> scandals or anything. So, uh, yeah, pretty benign mail for, for Brett. Okay. 
And this one comes from Cindy in Las Vegas, and she wants to know, Brett, World Series are about to kick off. Who you got? Cindy, I've got no clue. I'm telling you, I I never thought in a million years that we'd be sitting here with the Braves and the Astros from from the teams that were going to the postseason, but we are. Uh, I think that's why baseball is the greatest game. It's so unpredictable. These guys... Oh, man. I think Atlanta's got the better starting pitching. I think Houston's got the better overall team. So it's a push. I have no clue. All right. You're, uh, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to have to go with the National League. I think the National League overall is just a little better. I'm going to go with Atlanta. Atlanta is your team. We will hold you to it. Well, I'll probably be wrong. If, if you want to go to Vegas, go to Vegas and bet Houston. You'll probably win. <laughs> Well, and that's going to do it for our uh, podcast. The the advice is to go to Vegas. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded and downloaded by Liz Lantry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. 